Today, answers matter more than ever before. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage customer questions with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to work for any industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash Watson Assistant. Welcome to the Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp. Over the next hour, 49ers Hall of Famer Roger Craig, who won three Super Bowls alongside Joe Montana, says that Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback in NFL history. Tom Brady played in nine Super Bowls and won six. Come on, you gotta say he's the best ever. This guy is amazing. Plus, Diane Shaw explains the challenges she faced in trying to become a female sports writer in the 1970s. I remember several editors that I reached. Hi, I'm looking for a job. Well, you just got married. You'll be having babies. We can't hire you. And there was one editor, and he said, we have an opening on the four to midnight shift, but we would never give that to a girl. So that was the world I started out in. Also, Bill Paler describes the impact of Rajo Jack, a pioneer in auto racing. Here's this race car driver, a black race car driver, which you don't see any of, you know, especially at that time, and you really didn't when I was growing up, about, hey, here's this guy who started out racing in Oregon, goes to California in the 1920s, and I'm like, how did this guy do this? This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, we'll be speaking about pioneers in sports writing and in auto racing. But we start with a legend of the NFL, arguably one of the best players not in the Hall of Fame, a three-time Super Bowl champion for the San Francisco 49ers, running back Roger Craig. Roger, thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Jeremy. This is awesome. Roger, it's really uh, an honor for us to have you on the show. Um, I was a, a fan of... Uh, of your teams and the way you played back in the 1980s when you came into the league from Nebraska and those remarkable 49ers teams uh, with Joe Montana, uh, with Ronnie Lott. Uh, but 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 what I want to talk to you about today, and you're on the advisory board for uh, this app. It's called Sports Thread. And, and, and it's about connecting high school athletes uh, with coaches, with colleges at this time when there can be no uh, regular contact. It's the perfect time right now because of the social, you know, uh, you know, connection that, you know, with the coronavirus, you know, that this application is, is amazing. You know, Sports Thread is such a, a great social networking application for youth sports market. And thank God for their platform, you know, created by Sean Leary, the CEO um, you know, because we are going through this pandemic of this coronavirus, and users, you know, are, are logging into the application. You know, you wouldn't believe it. They, they're logging into it four times a day. So it, it, it's great for high school athletes that they're not letting the coronavirus affect them. They're, they're, they're emailing coaches, coaches and, um, and trying to promote themselves, you know, to create an opportunity to play in college. And that's what it's all about at the end of the day, you know. Um, and, and that's being creative. So how does it work, Roger? Well, well, you know, they have to just go go online and 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 connect with the, you know with the schools that you want to go to, and and then and then they can show their video, and and and, and they can do a, they can even talk on, on the video for, for for themselves, you know, for the coaches to see how the kids, how, how what kind of kid that they're trying to rec- you know to recruit. You know, so so it's amazing, uh, you know, app, you know, that uh, Sports Thread created. It's pretty awesome, 
You know, this is what we need right now. And, and I'm assuming, obviously, this is all kosher within the rules of the NCAA. Uh, I know there are all kinds of arcane rules. Oh, yeah. Obviously, oh, yeah. But it's all legal. There are all kinds of arcane rules about what kind of communication is allowed between coaches and recruits. But this is really mostly about not, not the big stars who are being recruited, who the coaches are going to find them. Well, the cool thing about this app, the coaches can go back all throughout their whole career of high school, you know, all four, three years, you know, whatever years. I mean, some schools of ninth grade, you know, and then some are just, just you know, you, you go from the sophomore on up. But they can go all, all three to four years back how great these, these players were and it's easy to, you know, to recruit them. It's like, you know, they, use, they, 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 they can just see how they progress over the years. You know, and that's the cool thing about this about this sports thread, you know, you know, application. You know that that they they have communication with the kids and, and all their stats, everything is, is all put on this app. You know, which you know makes it easy for recruiters to go out to recruit them. Roger, you played for one of the legendary college coaches of all time. Tom Osborne. Oh, I love him at Nebraska. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be talking to you today because of him. Really, you know, reason why. <laughs> Okay, my junior year, I was all Big Eight. That's when it was called the Big Eight Conference, right? Yep. <laughs> you know, long and, time ago, um, 1979. Yep. And, and I was all Big Eight. You know, uh, you know, I was a junior. You know, going to my senior year. You know, um, you know, I'm thinking that wow, I get a chance. You know, be a Heisman candidate or something. You know, you know, I was preseason All American. They promoted me up there to be preseason All American and all that. And then Mike Rozier came came in and um coach osborne called me to his office and he asked me roger would you switch to fullback because you, you we, we we have this, this other running back coming in that could be a really potent you know backfield with you, with you two in the backfield together i said coach if it's going to help us win so be it i'll play fullback and that year we lost only one game and tom osborne I mean, he 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 just loved me to death when he, when I did that for him, and so you know I didn't know that John Gruden's father was a was a professional uh, a scout for Bill Walsh. John Gruden's you know who's a coach for the Raiders. His father told Bill Walsh what I did my senior year, being unselfish, because most guys would would transfer and go to another school, <laughs> you know, to do that, you know, and, and his senior year on top of that. So Bill Walsh drafted me as his first pick in 1983 because, you know, he saw what I did and he knew that I, I was versatile, that I could, you know, could be a fullback and running back, but he didn't know I could catch it, though. <laughs> he didn't know I could catch the ball. And so when I heard that they were interested in me, you know, he, he, it was in Sports Illustrated where I read this, that Bill Walsh is interested in drafting Roger Craig. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I got to learn how to catch the ball. Because <laughs> at Nebraska, we didn't run, we didn't catch any passes. We just ran the ball down your throat. So I, I caught a hundred passes a day, just in case they drafted me <laughs> as the first pick, and they did, and I was prepared. Now, Roger Ir Irving <laughs> Fryer must have caught a few passes, right? I yeah, mean, he caught a couple. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, talk about talent. I mean, with yourself and Rozier and Fryer all there at that time, playing for Tom Osborne, remarkable. And then you go, you go to the NFL. We're speaking with Roger Craig, the former All Pro running back for the San Francisco 49ers, three-time Super Bowl champion. And 
you were one of the great dual threats ever coming out of the backfield. In 1985, in that season, after you guys had won the Super Bowl the previous year, uh-huh. you had 1,050 rushing yards. Yeah. You had 1,016 receiving yards with 92 receptions. Hey, and guess, and guess, and guess what position I was playing? You were a fullback. When I did that. You were a fullback. Fullback. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I led the whole NFL in receiving with 92 catches. I, I caught more passes than any receiver in the league, and and I was a fullback. You know, on top of that, you know, I never I was on the field 98 percent of the time. You know how hard it is to do a thousand thousand, and you know to, to be on the field 98 percent of the time. It sounds hard. I never left the field. <laughs> I had to block. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so so the millennials are definitely um, are chasing you know that thousand thousand, and I I I, I really I'm happy for Christian McCaffrey because he just did it back in uh, November this past November, and Marsha Fogg did it you know um, like what well, 18 years after I did it, and Christian McCaffrey did it just about 19 18 years after Marsha Fogg did it, so it's really tough to do. It's nothing. It's not. It's not hard. I mean, it's not easy that you can just go out and do a thousand thousand. It's really a tough thing to do. A lot of athletes tried to do it over the years, and they couldn't. They didn't succeed. There's only been three, and I was number one. You know, the first one. Roger, would you would you look around um, right now? Here it is, the beginning of May, um, and the the world around us has basically been shut down for the last two months. Do you think there's going to be football in the fall? I, I think it's going to be football in the fall. I, I really do. Um, you know, it, it's, it's going to, we, we, we still got to, you know, do our social, you know, distance and staying away from each other for a while. But uh, I think they're going, they're going to be football. It, it's football is, is such a big sport, you know, and it's going to be a, it, it, they will lose a lot of revenue if they don't put football out in the field. <laughs> and Roger, we were talking in our last segment about, um, this company that you work with, Sports Thread, it's an app which is connecting athletes, high school athletes, to colleges. And it gives them the opportunity to uh, showcase their skills, to disseminate their skills for coaches and for colleges. And and this this all existed before the coronavirus, correct? Oh, yeah. This, yeah, they're, they're ahead of their time. I mean, you know... You know, uh, the guy, uh, Sean Leary, the CEO of, of Sports Thread, they created this, this platform for kids, you know, a few years ago. And, uh, Dick O'Donnell turned me on to it. This guy is one of my colleagues that I worked with at Tipco Software. I reported to him. He was a marketing guy. <laughs> he was head of marketing at the time. And, and so he, he did this on the side and he brought me along to be a part of it. And I talked to, uh, Lauren Knight this morning. And we're all excited about about sports thread and everything about what how how the company's doing and yeah so this is really a great platform for high school kids to use you know to to be able to put their their all their stats and all their video you know so college coaches can see what they've accomplished because they all want to go to college they all want to you know play in college you know and and, and these kids you know they they have the platform to do it with sports thread. Again, we're speaking with Roger Craig, the legendary running back for the 49ers. And I mentioned the introduction when we started the show, Roger, 
that you're arguably one of the best players not in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> and, and you know, you you can have these I debates, know. and I know it's, it's tough sometimes, man. It's really it's it's really tough, man. You know, but you know, I, I look at it this way. You know, um, you know, I, I I made impact in in the sport. You know. Um, I, I created this, this, this platform for the millennials that are chasing after the thousand thousand. And, and I, you know, people don't realize I did 2000 yards in two different positions. I did it at fullback and I did it at halfback in 1988. I, I you know, I, I had 1500 yards rushing. I had 600 receiving, I had over 2000 yards in two different positions. No, they don't even talk about that, you know? And, and, and I was MVP of the NFC that year and Sports Illustrated Player of the Year. You know, so I was like, wait a minute, why, why, why am I not going into this hall? So I think it's going to happen, you know, uh, soon. I, I, I think it would have happened this year, but this coronavirus kind of interrupted it a little bit, you know. You know, that's why they, they, they didn't even have a, a, a Hall of Fame, you know, induction this year. You know, so it's kind of it's kind of sad, you know, but... But it's going to happen, and, 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 and I'm not going to worry about it, you know. Roger, as one of the pillars of that 49ers dynasty that won those three Super Bowls under Bill Walsh, two under George Seifert, you know, the conversation, obviously, in the last few years, especially after last year when the uh, Patriots won their sixth Super Bowl, is that Patriots dynasty greater than 49ers. And look, this is this is what we talk about in sports. <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid to admit that the Patriots have done some really impressive things. Playing and Tom Brady is one of my favorite guys that, that I love talking about. You know, he's from the you know the Bay Area, San Mateo. I'm good friends with his father. Tom Brady played in nine Super Bowls and won six. Come on, you got to give him the best. Saying he's the best ever. You know, <laughs> if you're not giving him, if you're not giving that, that kind of props to saying he's he's not the best ever, then you're jealous. You know, this guy is amazing. I, you know what, I, I, I mean, I understand your point, and I'm not disagreeing. I'm just surprised to be hearing that from a guy who, uh, you know, who was there with Joe Montana winning those Super Bowls. Well, well, you know, like I said, you know, we're, we're, Joe did his thing. He started it all. He, he, that's what Tom he. By what Joe Montana did, that motivated Tom, you know? So, but you think about it. Tom has played in nine Super Bowls and won six. That's pretty good. I mean, what quarterback has done that, you know? So you, 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 can't, you can't be biased and, 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 and just, you know, uh, and be, be you know, jealous of someone. No, no, I'm not jealous of Tom Brady. I'm, I'm proud of Tom Brady. You know, like I said, I'm good friends with his father. You know, and 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 uh, and hopefully he'll, he'll he's going to do a good job in Tampa when he goes down there. I'm pretty sure he will because he's a leader. He's a he's a great leader. The, the, the team will definitely step up with, with Tom Brady being on their team. And we're speaking with Roger Craig, the NFL legend, who uh, expects at some point to be in the Hall of Fame. He's certainly got a very strong case. Um, but we mentioned earlier, you know, you played in college for Tom Osborne. You played in the pros for Bill Walsh. Two of the guys in the conversation among the 10 most uh, successful, iconic coaches in the history of this great game. But so different, at least the way I, I didn't know either of them. I've been around each minimally. I'm not sure I've been around either of them, actually. <laughs> I mean, other than covering a game. Yeah. Um, but, but how would you compare their approaches? 
Well, they're, they're on the same page because it's, it's not about – they coach that it's not about you. It's about the team. And I learned that in high school. My high school coach really taught me that. That's why Coach Osborne liked me so well because, you know, um, what I did in high school, I, I, I did the same thing. I switched to fullback and blocked, <laughs> you know. you know, and, and so he liked that, you know, that, that he knew that I was a team guy. It's not about me. It's about the team. And that's my whole attitude that I took from high school to, to collegiate to the professionals and to, to corporate. I have the same mentality here at TIPCO. I work at TIPCO Software, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm business development is my title. Um, I've been with TIPCO for 20 years, you know, and, and, and we've been – and that's how I met Dick O'Donnell. Dick O'Donnell turned me on to Sports Thread, you know. And, and Dick O'Donnell was the guy I, I reported to when I first started at TIPCO. You know, and, and so I learned all these things, and they and and when when you when you learn these type of things, it helps you later in life. You know, because it's you know you're not selfish. And I'm from the Midwest, and I, I keep my Midwest values with me. I'm humble. I'm, I'm always going to be a humble human being. I learned that from my brother. I learned it from Walter Payton. I learned it from a lot of people, man. That you know that that kind of kind of helped my hand a little bit. You know. And so it's important in life, you know, to know your values. And, and, and I stick to my values, and that's what – I know the Hall of Fame will be coming up. You know, I, one day they'll get me in. But I don't cry about it. I don't talk about it, you know. And, and I just let them do, do it when they're ready for me. Roger Craig, the 1988 NFL Offensive Player of the Year, a three-time Super Bowl champion, a four-time Pro Bowler, one time first team all pro and one of the cornerstones of one of the great dynasties in the history of sports. Roger, it's really been a pleasure. You know, you know, and you know, it's another thing too. Yes, sir. My man, you know, I made all decade with Walter Payton and Eric Dickerson. Now, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm on your side on this one, Roger. I'm with you. I mean, you know, I, I, I yeah, you're only nine years older than me, but you know, you were, when I was a kid, you know, and following the NFL in the 1980s, I mean, you couldn't be much better than Roger Craig. Oh, thanks, my man. You're so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you're the man. You're the man. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, thank you, Roger. Thanks for being on the show. Oh, my pleasure, man. It, it, this what, see, this what brings, gives me life, you know, to, to be able to talk with you on the show bring up the, the, or my history, all the things that positive things I've done in life, you know, and through these crazy coronavirus times, you know, I need this kind of stuff, you know, so thank you so much for having me on your show and that, that you got me, I, I got goosebumps all over me, man. I swear my wife, my wife's going to make me go grocery store now. Uh, well, when I, when I think of those Super Bowls, I, <laughs> I get goosebumps too. Roger Craig. Take care. Bye-bye. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Our next guest was a pioneer in the field of sports writing, one of the first women to cover sports on a national basis for newspapers in this country, Diane Shah. Her new book, a memoir, is a farewell to arms, legs, and jock straps. Diane, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Diane, it's been a long time. We worked together, um, as we were talking before this interview started, about 20 years ago. You were a panelist on a show I used to host on ESPN Classic called 
classic sports reporters. We've lost many of uh, the other panelists, um, but it is a pleasure to have you on the show now talking about this this terrific memoir, looking back at a moment in time, not so long ago chronologically, but in terms of what you had to deal with and the doors you sometimes literally had to knock down. It seems like uh, another world. What was it like? being a woman in this industry 40 years ago, 50 years ago? Well, I'm going to go back even a little further because when I got out of uh, college, I got a journalism degree at Indiana University, and I went looking for a job, and um, I had gotten married. And I remember several editors uh, that I reached, uh, managing editors, hi, I'm looking for a job, well, you just got married. You'll be having babies. We can't hire you. <laughs> and there was one editor, I think he was with maybe a, one of the wire services, and he said, we have an opening on the four to midnight shift, but we would never give that to a girl. So that was the world I started out in. Um, and when it came to sports writing, I, I didn't know if there were any other women sports writers, but I was I was so naive, Jeremy. I, I thought it was because... No women were interested in being sports writers. Um, I didn't realize <laughs> that there was this brick wall. Um, so I started, and um, the problems came when I got hired by the Los Angeles Herald Examiner as a columnist. I was told the first female sports columnist in the country for a daily paper. And... Um, I found that several of the teams in Los Angeles weren't welcoming me. Um, and one of them was the Raiders. The Raiders had just moved from Oakland to Los Angeles. That was 1982. Um, and the season started, there were two games, and then there was a strike or a walkout. Anyway, there were a bunch of games that didn't happen. And during that, and I had been told that I couldn't go into the Raiders' locker room. So during the strike, I called uh, I called up the coach, and um, I wanted to t- talk to him. Tom Flores was his name. What is it like, you know, preparing for games that you're not going to play? And we had a nice conversation. And then I said to him, um, if I could have another minute of your time, um, I, I understand you don't let women in the locker room. He said, oh, no, absolutely not. And I said, well, coach. I need to get into the locker room. He said, no, 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 no way we can let you in the locker room. And he said, um, "We just it, it just can't happen. And I said, well, look, I know, I know this is weird. I said, my mother didn't raise me to do business with naked men, but this is my job. Here I am. I have to get in. And he said, I don't know if you realize, but last year some of the Raiders – took two male sports writers and threw them in a garbage can. I don't know what they would do to you. So I said, um, look, let me in. If they're really, really mean to me, I'll cry. What, what do you think he meant by that, <laughs> Diane? I mean, I mean, it almost, it almost sounds like a, I, I guess a threat's not the right word, but I mean, what, what do you think was, now obviously, you know, part of it is just, it hadn't happened, but there was this entrenched misogyny. Um, what do you think they were afraid of? And it wasn't just the Raiders. It, it was 
most locker rooms in sports, in men's sports, were barred to women. Yes, I got uh, one little insight. By the way, just to finish that story, they did let me in, and nobody threw me in a garbage can, so I survived the Raiders. Um, <laughs> but uh, prior to that, uh, the the what were they called? The California Angels. They're now the Los Angeles Angels of, of Anaheim. Anaheim, I think. And al- although originally they were the L.A. Angels, then they became the California Angels, now they're the L.A. Angels of Anaheim. I think I have the sequence correct, but but go ahead. I think I think you've got it right. The story I'm telling, they were the California Angels, and I was led in the locker room, no problem. But I had never actually gone in after a game. When they played at home, I, I would stay for a few innings and, and drive home. Uh, but this particular year, uh, Labor Day weekend came. They were fighting for a place in, in the playoffs, and they were off to Boston for five games, a five-game holiday weekend, and I decided to go, so I went. The Angels lost all five games, and after the fifth game into the locker room, I went, and as you know, Jeremy, the first thing you do is you go see the manager or the coach. So I walked into, the manager was a man named Gene Mock. I walked into his office. There were, I don't know, four or five other male reporters in there. I walked in. I start to open my notebook, and Gene Mock stopped speaking in the middle of a sentence and walked out. And the other reporters are going, huh, what's, what, what's this? But I knew. So I waited, and a while later I went back. He was dressed in his street clothes, and I said, Gene, did you walk out because of me? And he said, yes, I did. And he said, it makes me sick to my stomach to see you walking around in front of all these naked players, guys. Um, You remind me of my daughter. It makes me absolutely sick to my stomach. And then, Jeremy, he started to cry. Wow. And now what do I do? Um, I realized at that time that it was upsetting to men, too, that maybe it was more than a prejudice. It was just something new, and they hadn't dealt with it. They weren't sure how to deal with it. Um, And I think maybe being one of the first, I, in a way, was lucky because since they didn't know how to treat me, they just answered my questions, which is all I ever wanted. We're speaking with Diane K. Shaw. Her new memoir is A Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jock Straps. You you had to be, you, you were doing your job, but you also had to be a pioneer, and you had to fight all of these other fights as well. What kind of a toll did that take on you? Um, I know this isn't interesting. Uh, somehow, Jeremy, I just was able to deal with it. One of the things you learn pretty quickly, as I'm sure you have, um, athletes are very competitive. They like to get on each other, play tricks on each other, um, joke with each other, and they treat anybody that walks into the locker room the same way, including reporters. And so I found that I could just give it back. And it wasn't that I was so funny or so witty, but they could see I could play. And when you play, they'll leave you alone. And I really didn't have trouble um, with with the – I mean, there's obviously there were a few reporters guys that were sort of obnoxious, um, but they were usually obnoxious to everybody, not just me. Um, so I didn't, once I, the, the big problem was getting in the door. Once I was in the door, 
I was really okay. It, but it, it's not just about the athletes and the managers and the coaches, but also about your colleagues. And some were very uh, welcoming and, and others were not, I imagine. Yes. Um, well, it was one interesting uh, example that, that many of them were very, very nice and helpful. The ones that weren't, or the ones that I think were resentful or wasn't, weren't happy that I was there, they kind of kept quiet. Um, nobody really bothered me. Um, but uh, Georgia Frontieri, who owned the Rams, the only female football owner, uh, refused to let me in her locker room, her guy's locker room. And uh, the paper I worked for, the L.A. Herald Examiner, without telling me, sued the Rams, which I was not happy about. Um, and she tried to impress you with her knowledge of the game as well, as I recall <laughs> from the book. Yes. Well, she wanted a, a running back who could throw or something like that she was looking. Um, right. But so uh, the judge in this case said, okay, uh, Rams, either you let everybody in or nobody in. So the Rams said, we're not letting anybody in our locker room. And I get to Anaheim for the game that Sunday, and, you know, all the guys in the press box are kind of looking at me. And, yeah, um, this is the last thing you need. Well, not only that, but I, I, I was NBC interviewed me. You know, I was all over the place, and I thought, oh, God, my parents are probably, you know, here's their daughter wanting to see naked men, and it's going all over the country. But um, so what happened after the game was we were – ushered into the like the bowels of the stadium and there was a room set up with folding chairs and in the back of the room there were two tables with tablecloths and bottles of liquor and wine and ice and and uh beer and so the the writers walk in and, and oh and there were two bartenders and they look at this display and they got furious they said what does she think this is a party we're on deadline we're working and so all the anger towards me shifted back to her, where it belonged, by the way. And so she she kept everybody out for the whole rest of the season. And then I guess in the off season, somebody talked sense into her and she let us in. Diane, it's really been a pleasure. I'm afraid uh, we have to wrap up our conversation, but it's a terrific book and a testament to a remarkable career. Diane K. Shaw's new memoir is a farewell to arms, legs, and jock straps. Diane, it was great catching up. Thanks for being with us. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Jeremy. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. And as regular listeners of this show are pretty aware, I, I like to consider myself something of a sports historian. Uh, maybe I overrate myself, but a new book has made me fully aware of a chapter of sports history that I knew nothing about, written by the longtime sports writer in the Pacific Northwest, Bill Paler. The book is The Brown Bullet, Rajo Jack's Drive to Integrate Auto Racing. And as I said, a story I was unaware of, but people should know more about. And Bill Paler joins us now. Bill, thank you for being with us here on The Sporting Life. Hey Jeremy, thanks so much. I'm a big fan. Well, well, as I as I say, when on those rare occasions somebody says such things, you're in a very exclusive club. Um, <laughs> but but with with Rajo Jack, this is something that you've been interested in for a long time, and most people aren't even aware of who he was. How did you become interested in his story? 
I read tiny little bits here and there that would mention him. And, and the, there was the curiosity thing of here's this race car driver who got his start. This, you know, he's a, a black race car driver, which you don't see any of, um, you know, especially at that time. And you really didn't when I was growing up. I mean, Willie T. Ribs finally came along and broke the color barrier at Indy. But I was seeing this stuff about, hey, here's this guy who started out racing in Oregon, goes to California in the 1920s. And I'm like, how did this guy do this? I had... You know, I'd see little bits here and there in books and magazines, and I was just so fascinated that eventually, you know, after my dad died, I said, "Hey, I gotta, you know, collect all the all of his research, and and I gotta I gotta start moving forward." He had so many books that had just little bits that I I just got, I grew so determined I had to get it done, had to tell a story. You know, I couldn't let it go. I couldn't let Roger Jack's story just disappear who was dewey gatson aka roger jack who was he where did he come from uh born in tyler texas in 1905 in a very very poor area of the rose capital of the world yes earl campbell's hometown earl campbell's hometown yes. as 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 my friends point out constantly um <laughs> but it was very it was it was not the greatest place for for african-americans at the time it's still pretty segregated if you go there today um, and he, it was, it was pretty, hu- pretty much a humble hometown and there wasn't a whole lot there. And he, and, you know, Dewey just desperately wanted to get out of there as soon as he could. He had, he desperately wanted to leave and he left at the age of 15. We're speaking with Bill Paler about his new book about Rajo Jack, who is a pioneer in the integration of auto racing. But it, it, I don't know if that's even really the right way to put it because, um, he was so ahead of his time. Um, how how does he how does he get into the sport initially? He was he got into it. It was sort of by accident. He was working for uh, for Doc Marcel, who was a, a medicine show. He, he Doc Marcel. He went also went by a bunch of different names. He was a, basically a con man, but he had a medicine show at one time. Um, you know, snake oil. But and he went to work for him and Marcel would pick up these photography assignments to kind of make ends meet between, you know, medicine shows. And they one of the photography assignments just ended up being at a race. And he went went to this race and he got he and that's where Roger Jack met Joe Jagersberger, who was selling these Ray Joe heads. And he started selling them and. At the age of 15 years old, you've got this you've got this skinny black kid in Oregon selling auto or selling auto parts and selling performance auto parts at in in 1920. You know, he he just was an enterprise. Roger was an enterprising guy. and He kind of took his identity from that because he was selling so many and he didn't really want to drive until he saw Barney Oldfield. And after Barney Oldfield. You know, Barney Oldfield was the he was the Dale Earnhardt of his of the the early 1900s. He decided I'm going to be a race car driver. He he figured out I have to get this. I have to do this. I have to become a race car driver. Bill Paler's new book is The Brown Bullet: Rajo Jack's Drive to Integrate Auto Racing. And how receptive was the auto racing community as it was at that time to the idea of an African American driver? When it came to the Triple A, um, so Triple A contest board. It was an offshoot of Triple A as we know it today. You know the same ones that the same organization that's still operating. They had a contest board that they controlled racing all major races, like the Indianapolis 500, for instance, and all the major races. Um, 
you know, if you date that back to 1910, uh, Barney Oldfield tried to race against Jack Johnson, the boxer, the heavyweight, the first African American heavyweight champion, and he and in that race, uh, when when that came out, um, the AAA said, no, you can't race against Barney Oldfield. No, you can't race against a black man. It was it, they were they forbade it, and after that, that set the precedent. And then every time Roger Jack would try to enter a AAA race, they'd turn him down. He sent in, in entry forms into the Indy 500 for years, for decades, for over a decade, and. They just sent it back. They would not accept it. So he had to go race on these outlaw circuits, which, you know, they, they these outlaw circuits, some of them were really terrible, but some of them, you know, were, were actually of a decent quality. And he did it as well. He, he, he just had to race. So he, he'd race wherever he could. What do we know about how good he was? <laughs> he won a lot of races. Uh, and he won a lot of races against a lot of really good drivers. Um, you look through the guys that, that he raced against, uh, that I, guys like Bill Cummins, uh, you know, uh, guys like, um, yeah, well, Fred Frame, for instance, guys like uh, George Robson, they all won the Indianapolis 500, and Roger Jack beat them regularly. So if you just want to base it on that, I think Roger Jack was, was if we look, at, look through that lens, he was he was a legit driver. He could do the job. And back then, especially, you had to be fearless. Maybe even uh, in possession of a kind of death wish yeah. to be racing these kinds of vehicles under those circumstances with that kind of safety right. gear. What what safety gear? Right, right. There wasn't anything. We're speaking with Bill Paler. His book is The Brown Bullet: Rajo Jack's Drive to Integrate auto racing and it is a fascinating story and i'm fascinated as well by your uh your desire uh almost um your preoccupation with telling his story which which has been largely forgotten he's been honored over the years he's a member of a number of halls of fame but but why isn't rajo jack somebody who uh is more celebrated than he has been i think he was mostly forgotten by history because they he was not, he never reached the pinnacle. So, you know, you could say, you know, Jackie Robinson reached the pinnacle. He did all this. He, you know, he, he was the guy to, to, to bridge that divide. You know, Roger Jack never got that opportunity. And there were, there were chances in there. He had worked up deals like with Eddie Anderson, you know, Rochester from the Jack Benny show that he could have, you know, at least gotten India's mechanic. If he had, he just never quite got that, he got the national attention, but he, ne- but for, because he never competed at the highest level, people just kind of forgot about who he was. And, per, and for, I, you'd see little bits here and there where he'd get the, you know, there'd be a story about, say, Bill Lester, the NASCAR driver, and there'd be a mention of Rajo Jack DeSoda. You know, they'd use some of his fake, all of his fake names. And there'd be, you know, if you look at Arthur Ashe's book about the history of, of uh, his history of African-American sports. He doesn't even get the, any of Roger Jack's names correct. I mean, not his real name, not Roger Jack, none of that. So he was pretty much just forgotten, which is just kind of tragic because this guy did so much and he did so well for so long. But, you know, he, I, I couldn't let that let it go away. I couldn't let it disappear. I, could, I had to do something. A remarkable story about a remarkable athlete who was a pioneer. His story largely forgotten, told now in a new book by Bill Paler, The Brown Bullet, Rajo Jack's Drive to Integrate Auto Racing. 
Really uh, remarkable stuff. Bill, thanks so much for writing this book. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. It was great. It was, it's a lot of fun. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.